0: Before I was a proud member of Anytime Fitness here in Paragould, I lived in Kansas City, and I was for years a member of Gold's Gym in the Westport neighborhood where my family and I used to live. And if you're a part of a gym, if you're a regular at a gym, you know there's a sense of community that develops at the gym. Uh, You see the same people and faces week in and week out. Uh, you get to know their names, some of them, and a little bit about their stories, and you have small talk. So these people become regulars in your life, and, and they become acquaintances, and in some situations, they become really close friends. And so I had a good friend, uh relationship that I had developed uh, at Gold's Gym in Kansas City with a guy named Frank. The thing about Frank is that Frank was, uh, he was nicknamed the mascot of Gold's Gym, and he was by far everybody's favorite person. Frank was a big guy, big personality, gregarious, like a lot of fun. And if you knew Frank, the, the thing that fa- Frank was most famous for was really two things. Number one is that Frank would come into the gym every day and hit it hard. Like he was Mr. Intensity, like he's not... He's the guy that like, what's the move where you're like, you know, do you like grab it and you like do a clean and press over your head kind of thing? Like some, I, I don't know. I don't do that. But Frank uh, would be, he would be crushing that, whatever that is. Or like, you know, crushing some squats or, or, or like, you know, like 2,000 meters on the like row machine or something like he's, and sweating profusely. So it was a really, really common, normal experience in those days at Gold's Gym to look over. He was also uh a, one of the, like a grunter, you know, those types in the gym. Or they're like, really, their presence is felt because they're just and screaming and sweating. So, that, okay, that's Frank was known for that. And, and, and in the, the same Frank with the same sweat and the same moment, what he was also known for was it was a regular common, not if I'm lying, I'm dying, common experience to look over and see Frank set down his dumbbells and reach for his box of donuts. So, um, And you would see him like go from crushing his like you know shoulders to crushing donuts. It was just like this is a normal, totally normal thing for Frank the Tank, and um, and so he would bring. So every day he would come in. He would bring the a fresh box of Kansas City's famous Lamar's donuts, which is just outrageously good. And, um, and it was just a regular thing to kind of see him over there smacking his fingers and wiping the sweat. It was, uh, quite a, quite a sight. So I, you know, I, I wasn't used to seeing that, quite frankly. So I, I developed a little bit of a relationship with Frank. And so one day just asked him, you know, Hey, Frank, like, you know, I don't see a lot of people eat donuts while they work out. So can you tell me more about that? I'd love to know. I'd just love to know a little bit more about that. And Frank paused, reflected on the question and then gave me the most honest, straightforward, simple, yet profound answer. He said, uh, well, I mean, I guess part of me really, you know, wants to be fit, and wants to be healthy, and wants to make better choices in my life. But another part of me just really wants to eat donuts. (laughs) So, So... you know, I kind of just do both. And, and he, he went on to talk about it and describe it like this internal tug of war where he just sort of is caught in the middle between these competing desires. And I laughed and thought about Frank. I, th- I think about Frank often and I used to think about him every time I would go to any time. I laughed when I moved home and I saw this. If we have a picture, yeah. So this is before anytime relocated in their beautiful new facility, obviously. But here you have any, the juxtaposition of fitness and donuts right here, side by side. And really what you're getting at with this picture is you're looking at a window into Frank's soul. This is the man's internal battle of part of me wants to make healthy decisions, but a part of me just wants to eat fried bread glazed with sugar. And um, so the older I get, i 'm bumping up against forty now, and and the older I get, and the longer I follow Jesus, which is coming up on twenty years. The older I get, the longer I follow Jesus and I try to live my life running after him, the more I resonate with my friend Frank, and the more I realize that this picture is really not just a just a metaphor for frank 's struggle it 's really not just a a picture in a window into what 's going on in his soul, but it 's actually a picture in a window of, of what 's going on in my soul. Uh, and the, the kind of inner tension and tug of war that, that I live with every day. Because here's the, here's the deal. Full blown confession, truth moment for me. Um, part of me, part of Adam really wants to be mature. Um, and, and part of me really wants to be healthy and wise and do whatever Jesus would have me do. You tell me what to do, Jesus jump and I'll ask how high, like part of me wants to live my life that way. But another part of me often really, really, really wants to do whatever is the opposite of that. And I see this show up all over the place in my life. Um, not just in, in my relationship to nutrition, like Frank, but also like, for example, I see this show up in my relationship to money. So part of me um, really wants to be generous and a good steward with my money, but another part of me wants to be stingy with it and hoard it. Or, or that part of me wants to like spend it as soon as I get it. Um, part This shows up in my relationship to work. Like part of me wants to have healthy boundaries with my work so that work, I guard the margins and have time for Jesus and time with my family and time to take care of myself. But another part of me wants to work all the time because I have something to prove. And because there's something on the inside, some ache that I'm trying to soothe, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it with work. So it shows up with with money. It shows up with work. It shows up um, in my relationship with other people. Uh, Part of me really does want to love people, and yet part of me sometimes just wants to slap them. Uh, I mean, so raise your hand if you resonate with that. Anybody? Okay, great. I mean, not good, not great, but uh, but it's great that I don't feel so alone. in that struggle, because that's a real, that's a real struggle for me. I mean, how many of you have the moment, like in a, you have a, in the heat of the moment, you have a moment of madness, like of temporary insanity, where you say things to somebody else. And as they're coming out of your mouth, another part of you is trying to grab the words and pull them back in and saying, no, no, bro. We don't want to do this. Like, we don't want to be this kind of person. You don't, you don't actually want to say those things. And this other part of you says, yeah, I actually do. I really want to tell this person what I think. I really want to give them a piece of my mind. If you could be in my, if you could hear the conversations, sometimes I just want to tell people how incompetent I think they are. Okay. Sue me. I mean, it's, it's a real deep part of me that I have. Um, and, and if you could hear the, the conversations in my head, With officials and referees when I'm watching hogs or or the Chiefs play. It's like, and and if you're in my living room, you don't have to guess because these things come out of my mouth, right? They, They just come right out of my mouth. And part of me really wants to say, like, this is what I really think about you. This is, and I want to let you have it. But then there's this other part of me that says, this is, no, this is not the kind of person I want to be. And this is not the kind of person I want to become. To sum it all up, the, all, all these examples at the root of them is this, where this, this tug of war really shows up is in my relationship with Jesus. So what I'm, what I'm learning about myself is that part of me really, really wants to love Jesus with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. But another part of me wants to love and attach to other things to numb the pain that I carry. Uh, part of me wants to love Jesus with all my being. Part of me wants to love and attach to other things for my identity and my security. Part of me wants to trust Jesus with my life. Like, you take it. I trust that you can run it better than me. But you know that, you know that thing where it's like, can, honey, can you grab, I'm, I just grab my Bible. I want to try to give it to you and just try to take it. So then I'm going to just do this and that. So that, that part of me does that. Thanks. With Jesus. Where it's like, I want, you take my life. I trust that you can run it better than me. You designed it. I, I give up. You take it. But this other part of me says, I don't trust you. And I actually think that deep down inside, I can run my life better than you. And I want control and I want to live life on my terms. And something tells me that Frank and I are not the only ones who struggle with this. You want to know why I say that? uh because this internal tug of war is a major theme that shows up in every single letter that the apostle Paul wrote and he wrote 27 of them which means this is all over your bible and Paul even wrote about his own internal battle he wrote about this struggle in his own life here's what he said Romans 7:15 we'll put it on the screen he says i do not understand what i do for what i want to do i do not do but what i hate I do. And I actually like the the quote underneath it, the new living translation which reads like this. I don't really understand myself. Raise your hand if I mean t- again, this is where I'm at. I don't really understand myself. For I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Notice that Paul speaks almost like there's two different eyes in that in that in that sentence. There's two different selves There's two different parts that are at war within him. Part of me wants to do what is right, but another part of me wants to do what I hate. Here's the big takeaway for us. Here's the kind of the thing I want us to wrestle with. And this is what Paul wants us to see as we get into Galatians chapter 5. It's this, okay, at the core of every disciple of Jesus, and, and really in a sense at the core of every single human being, There is a real war and battle that is raging in our souls. And it's not just raging in your soul, but it's raging for your soul. And here's the battle, okay? Here's the two different parts. It's a battle between our strongest desires, which is like the the in-the-moment stuff. The, the in the moment of temptation, lusts and cravings and compulsions. It's, it's all of that stuff, your strongest desires, which are at war with your deepest desires. I've, have n- yet to meet another human being on this planet that at the end of their life didn't want to be known for having a beautiful character. Nobody, even people that don't have Jesus like, nobody wants to be a moral monster. At the end of our lives, we want to be known as a person whose life was marked by love and beauty and integrity in our character, a person that brought joy and peace to, to our relationships. Like there's a war taking place between that part of you that longs for that kind of transformation and this other part of you that gets in the way with that and just wants what it wants right now in the moment, consequences be damned. It's a war in your soul For your soul. On that note, here's what I want to do. I want to jump, y'all with me? I want to jump into Galatians chapter five and I just want to walk through it and I just want to ask two helpful questions to help us engage with this internal conflict, okay? Question number one, why do I have these competing desires? What is going on inside of me? And then question number two, as disciples of Jesus, How do we resist our strongest desires and live into our deepest desires to become the men and women that God created and intended us to be? Okay, those are the two questions. Question number one, why do I have these competing desires? I'm glad you asked because Paul answers it for us in Galatians 5, starting in verse 16 and 17. So look with me. He says this, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. Pay attention to this. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. Notice as you're looking at that text, Paul says we have this internal conflict going on between two parts, two different realities, the Holy Spirit and something he calls the flesh. So Paul is saying to the Galatians and to us, hey, let me let me put into words your human experience. Let me let me help make some sense of this for you. If you're a disciple of Jesus, that means you've received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's given you a new heart with new desires. This is the deepest, most true part of who you are. It's the part of you that wants God and wants what God wants. That's the Spirit. However, (laughs) you have this other part of you, Paul says, called the flesh. Here's the thing about the flesh. The flesh has its own agenda, its own plan, its own appetites and its own desires, and those desires don't line up with what the Spirit of God in you desires. And so Paul says that means you've got a war going on inside of you. He, look, notice, he uses the word conflict. That's military battle language. In the Greek, that's a military term. Paul's saying there is a battle, a war taking place in your soul and for your soul. And then notice, this is huge. It's a battle between desires, Paul says. It's a battle of desire. That's huge. I like the way the ESV reads, actually, of verse 17. So here's what it says. For the desires of the flesh are against, that's war language, against the spirit. And the the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other. This is the line I really like. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. So focus on that line for a second. The spirit and the flesh are both fighting to keep you from doing what you want to do. The problem is you want to do both. That's the problem. The spirit in you is trying to keep you from doing what the flesh wants. I really want to tell this person what I think. I really want to hurt this person because they hurt me. This part, they have no idea what I could do to them. And the Holy Spirit in you is saying, hey dude, you don't really want to do that. Um you you have a new heart with new desires. And if you weren't so emotionally drunk right now on hurt, if you were actually thinking about this with a sober mind, you would be in touch with the reality that actually your deepest desire is to love and forgive that person the way Jesus has loved and forgiven you. Not, not to, not to you, you desire to be kind and gracious and gentle and compassionate because that's the way Jesus is, those are your deepest desires. And the flesh is actually no, I want to choke this person, right? And so there's a war taking place. The flesh wants deeply to rage at bad customer service. Anybody else? Come on, dude. I just can't do it. I can't. I see that hand. Thank you. Um part of me wants to wants to freak out on the person who's driving in front of me too slow, right? And and the the thoughts I have in my mind, the things that sometimes come out of my mouth, but the Holy Spirit always reminds me, and sometimes I don't hear it until it's too late hey, Adam, that's not who you really want to be. Like, your your deepest desires are to be patient and gentle and encouraging to people, not to throttle them and tear them down with your words. So here's what Paul's getting at, okay? If you're a note taker, this is where you, you need to write this down because this is the point. Here's what he's getting at. Often, your strongest desires are not your deepest desires. Often. so it's, it's a war between desires, So in the moment, your strongest desires may be to lust and rage out and consume and escape, lie, attack, blame, justify, hide. But if you have the Spirit of God in you, those are not your deepest desires. Deeper than that, underneath that, you have a new heart that's been transformed by the Spirit of Jesus and filled with His presence. And your deepest desire now is to be with Him, become like Him, and live the way that He lived. The problem is that is going to be a constant fight on this side of heaven. Because, again, you have this other part of you called the flesh that is profoundly resistant to that. So this is, this is why we all feel this tug of war in our desires. You guys with me? This is the human experience. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, it really is your everyday battle. Now from here, here's what Paul does, Okay. From here, he gives us some practical examples of how these two operating systems show up in your life. You have two operating systems, the spirit that motivates you and wants what God wants, the flesh that wants whatever it wants. And Paul now says, let me put this on the bottom shelf and on the ground for you and show you some real practical examples of how this shows up in your life and in your relationships. And first he starts with the flesh. Look at verse 19. Paul says this, the acts, or maybe your translation says the works of the flesh are obvious. Now, let's, let's stop right here. Just put your finger there, and I want to focus on that word flesh that's, it, that's emboldened on the screen. I want to unpack this word for a second because we've been talking about it, but we've yet to define it. What is, what is the flesh exactly, okay? What is this thing in me that just wants what it wants? What, what is it? And to get this, we have to understand that when Paul talks about your flesh, he's not talking about your physical flesh. So what he's, what he's not saying is your body and your biological desires are bad and at war with the Holy Spirit. We don't have time for, for a lecture on this, but that's actually a heresy that's been condemned throughout church history called Gnosticism, where, where the material world is bad. You know, Jesus forever joined his his, changed his nature and joined it to a human body forever. And the resurrection proves that he cares deeply about your body and the material world. End of that sermon, okay? The point is, that's not what Paul's talking about. When Paul talks about your flesh, some, some translations, uh, your translation might read sinful nature. That's what Paul's getting at. Here's my working definition, okay? Your flesh, I'm going to give you three definitions. This, this is mine. Your flesh is the part of you that is bent on self-protection and doing life apart from God because it's too afraid and too prideful to trust. That's your flesh. I really like the way Pastor John Tyson defines it. He says, quote, This passage is defining flesh as those parts of ourselves and the systems they create that exist in rebellion to God and seek to function as coping mechanisms to keep us from depending on God. I really, really like that definition. We're going to come back to it in a second. Or I like the way my friend Rich Plass says it. Quote, the flesh is a taking and defending posture rooted in a mistrusting soul. Just put your eyes on Rich's definition there for a second. Here's what I want you to notice. What I want you to notice about that is notice how the flesh cannot do relationships. The flesh can't do, the flesh, the flesh is allergic to relationship with God because the flesh is allergic to trust. It can't trust. The flesh can't have a relationship with God because it won't trust God. It trusts in its own coping mechanisms to, to get by in life without God. Notice how the flesh can't do relationships with other people because instead of giving and receiving, the flesh only knows how to take and defend. And I'm telling you, this is not the life that the deepest part of you wants because it's not the life that we were made for. There's something deep inside every human. E- okay, even if you're watching this or you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, and I'm so glad you're here, there is still something in you that theologians have called an echo of Eden. It's a deep, deep part of you that you can't deny that, that, that goes back to your original design and the life that you were made for. And, and it says, I don't want this life. I'm built for connection and communion with my creator. And, and the first time you ever see the flesh show up on the scene... And and interrupt and hijack our lives and our relationships as you go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and you see that human beings were made for constant connection and communion with God and the the source of love and out of that connection we were designed to live in the overflow of that to love and serve one another and to to live in, in harmony and at peace with the rest of creation. But what happens is in Genesis three, a serpent shows up and enters into the narrative and begins to lie to us and bring God's love into question. God doesn't really love you. He doesn't really know how to run your life. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. You can't trust him. And what happens in that moment, it's, it's incredible. Look at this definition. What happens in the moment is the moment we, we break trust with God, his love comes into question and we decide not to trust him. The very first thing we do out of a mistrusting soul is we take Eve. T- the, it's right there in the text in Genesis three. The word is she took the fruit. It's symbolic of I'm now going to live my life because I can't trust God anymore. I have to live my life uh, grasping for control, taking what I can get, taking what is mine. And that, that is the flesh. It's the first time it ever shows up on the scene. What do we do as soon as we take our life in our hands? We go in straight into a defensive posture of covering, hiding, and blaming, and attacking. God goes to Adam and holds him morally responsible for this whole thing, by the way. Guys, it's our fault because we didn't protect and steward what God had given us. And God goes to Adam in this moment and says, what did you, what, why have you done this? You know what Adam does? Adam says... Well, you know, the woman that you gave me, she, you know, goes, ta- attacks his wife. This is the flesh. He goes to Eve and Eve says, well, the serpent that you made, I mean, really is the one. And she attacks God and blames. And so this is the, the what's so tragic about this is the rest of the human story now is one of us Human beings wandering around east of Eden trying to figure out who in the world we are and how do you navigate life in a broken world apart from trusting God. And the only way to do it is through a taking and defending posture called the flesh. And it's not the life you were made for. And if you're really honest, it ain't the life you want. It sabotages you of life. Now, how does it show up in your life? What are these coping mechanisms and these strategies of taking and defending. Well, that's where Paul takes us next. How does it show up? Look, look at what Paul says um, in verse, where are we? Somewhere. 19. Here we go. Here's what he says. The acts of the flesh are obvious. It's real obvious uh, in the digital age, but here's, here's what he goes. Sexual immorality... Uh, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And notice he says things like these. I would underline that. Here's what's important to notice. This is not an exhaustive list. Paul says, and things like these. So Paul is giving us examples of the kind of strategies we reach for in the flesh. And really, you can divide this into three broad categories. Self-indulgence, religion, and relational patterns. Um, a brief word on each. Okay. Five words in this list have to do with self-indulgence. A lot of it around sexuality. This is a real easy strategy for the flesh to reach for. Is it'll, it'll hijack your sexual, your sexual desires and your sexual makeup, and distort it, and use it for its own purposes because it doesn't trust God with with its life. Um, he uses the word sexual immorality, which is the Greek word pornia, where we get our word pornography. It refers to any sexual ac- activity outside of God's design of marriage between a husband and a wife. He mentions impurity, which is getting at sexual impurity, debauchery, which is which means excess, res- excess or lack of restraint. Consumerism. And then in verse 21 he mentions drunkenness and orgies. And what all these have in common is they're all about indulging yourself with comfort and pleasure. And please, please listen to this. At its core, self-indulgence is always 100% of the time, a coping mechanism to numb and escape the pain that you don't want to feel because you're too deeply afraid to trust God with it. Because if you trust God with it, it means you actually have to feel it and you have to face it. If there's one thing that unites all of us in this room, it's that we all come in this place with a ton of pain. Because you ain't getting out of a fallen world without that. Um... You live long enough and you'll suffer. And, and, and truthfully, nobody gets out of childhood unscathed. So what's the pain that you try to run from and that you try to numb? You know, like, for some of you, it's the, it's the pain of what you never had. It's the loss of what you never had. Like a father or a mother that was attuned to you, that actually showed up in your life emotionally and cared, or maybe it was something that, a lot of times, guys, like the pain we carry is it's a result of our own sin and folly and the decisions that we've made that's busted up our life. But, you know, if we're honest, too, a lot of the pain we carry is the result of the sins of other people committed against us and the capital T trauma that we've endured, usually at the hands of people who are supposed to protect us and love us. Here's what the flesh does. The flesh says, I've got to find a way to survive that. Because if I don't, that's going to blow us apart and shut down the whole system and we'll never make it. So I'm going to reach for any numbing agent, any self-indulgent strategy, any any elixir that I can find to, to numb the pain, to get me out of this. And the flesh says, I'm sure not going to trust God with it. Because you want to know if you want to trust God with your pain, if you want to unbox the trauma and give it to God, that means you're going to actually have to give it to him. Which means you're gonna actually have to sit in it and deal with it and relive it and face it. And that means that you're gonna actually have to stop defending and protecting it. And you're gonna actually have to open up. This is trust. And I'll tell you what this is. This is scary because this is vulnerable. And the last time you did this, you got hurt. Am I right? So the flesh says, I ain't doing that again. (laughs) No way, Jose. I will, I will, I will numb. I will cope. All the way to the grave because I'm too afraid and too prideful to trust God with the pain that I carry. I understand this. Jesus has a ton of compassion for this. He came to set you free of that. And maybe some of you in the room are like, well, okay, you're still struggling to, like, go there. And one of the things you're using to not have to go there and deal with what I'm saying is that you're looking at this list and you're saying, well, this isn't really talking about me because I'm not acting out sexually or abusing substances. And Paul's talking about getting drunk and, like, connecting with hookers and stuff. And this is not my life, so I don't have anything to do with this and not so fast. Because there are a lot less obvious ways and more socially acceptable ways the flesh will try to numb and escape the pain that you carry. In his book on addiction, Dr. Gabor Mate talks about all kinds of what he calls emotional anesthetics, which might be my favorite term for this stuff. Emotional anesthetics, and he says, like, well, we, anything can be an emotional anesthetic. Um, excessive daydreaming, that's right. Daydreaming can be a strategy of the flesh. Social media, screens, overworking, over-exercising, over, uh, eating, overcleaning, overspending, oversleeping, excessive entertainment. Like the point is, guys, the flesh will use any strategy it can find. It's, it doesn't discriminate against any. Uh, give me porn, give me Snickers. I mean, get whatever, like the flesh will just, it just reaches for whatever, it, whatever it can find to self-indulge, to numb the pain. So the question is, where do you see these kinds of emotional anesthetics showing up in your life? And, 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 and the invitation from Jesus is to to embrace the reality that this is not the life that you want. These are not your deepest desires. Your deepest desires are for healing and for freedom, which is to say your deepest desires are for Jesus. Paul continues... You have another strategy of the flesh called uh, religion. Okay, He moves talks about idolatry and witchcraft in verse 20. And he's talking about this idea of trying to do the right things and the right practices to manipulate and get control of a higher power to use to your own advantage. And don't just think about pagans because he's talking about witches. Think Pharisees who uh, were super religious, good, moral people, churchy people, the kind of people who are in church every Sunday, who know the Bible, who do all the right things, who look really clean and pristine on the outside, but meanwhile on the inside they're dead because all they want is control. And on the inside, they're really just using their religion and their moral performance to put God in their pocket so that he owes them. So that in the end they can say, the flesh in them can say, whatever I receive from God, I deserve. I, I, I earned. None of this grace stuff. The flesh doesn't know what to do with grace. It doesn't speak that language. So see, the flesh is sneaky, man. The first list is like the younger brother who's out slopping with the pigs and like doing hard drugs and like sexually broken and stuff. But, but the flesh, here's the thing about the flesh. Let me put, it, let me say it like this. Sometimes the flesh's strategy is not to make you look bad. Sometimes the flesh's strategy is to make you look really, really good. This good moral record, and I get it, because as a kid that grew up in church, that went off to Bible college, then went off to Bible seminary, then became a pastor, I'm very, very familiar with this strategy of the flesh, and I have to be very, very careful because this is a place, as a pastor, where my flesh often wants to hide, and it keeps it's not the life I want it's not the life, it's not my deepest desires. Lastly, Paul talks about how the flesh will use relational patterns to protect you. Eight out of the 15 things he mentions are about how we relate to one another. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. And here's the point, when we're not walking by the Spirit, we don't treat one another very well, and we self-protect, and this is that posture of attacking and defending, And Paul says earlier in verse 15, if you do this, if you bite and devour, if you attack and defend with each other, watch out because you're going to be destroyed by each other. And this is what happens when we operate in the flesh. And I think we're living in a cultural moment where this particular strategy of the flesh has been really highlighted and exaggerated because we're living in a cultural moment where everything now is a dividing, polarizing issue. There is no such thing as tolerance anymore. Um, if you play by the rules of our culture, you you have to demonize whoever you disagree with. And, and I c- honestly can be just as guilty. Paul's whole point here in, in, in the acts or works or strategies of the flesh is to say, look, guys, listen, this is Genesis 3 playing itself out over and over and over again in your life. This is the taking and grasping at control, the self-protection and defending and attacking. This is the covering, hiding, and blaming. This is the patterns of the flesh showing up over and over in your life, and they're destroying your life. Paul actually says in verse 21, they will keep you from experiencing life with God in his kingdom. Look at that. Those, quote, who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. End quote. And Paul's not trying to like control you with fear here. You want to know what this is? This is a loving warning. When I tell my kids, don't play in the street. When somebody puts a sign on the road that says, sharp, turn ahead, and they're warning you. You want to know what that is? That's an invitation to life. Slow down. And take the turn properly and you'll live. Alright? Don't heed the warning, run off the road and die. This is a warning from Paul, but it's not, it's a war, it's an invitation to life. Paul's saying, wake up, this is not what you want. You don't even have to have Jesus to look at this list and know that you don't want this stuff. This, this, is a, this is hell on earth. It's a life that's out of control, full of rage and jealousy and sexual brokenness. Who wants that? Nobody wants that. And Paul's saying, at the core of your being, there's a deeper part of you that wants something more beautiful. And if you have the spirit of Jesus in you, you definitely want this life. Because this is the, you have a new heart that wants what Jesus wants. And it's a life of transformation and beauty from the inside out. And Paul gives us a, a, an illustration or a, fleshes out that vision for us in, in verse 22 and 23. Look at what he says. He's going to contrast the works of the flesh with now the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You want to know what this list is? Paul's, Paul's painting a picture of, of the of our deepest desires. This is the life we all want. This is the kind of person we all want to become. Again, I know if, I know I've said this many times, but even even if even if you're even if you don't have the spirit, nobody reads this list and says, "Yeah, love and joy and peace, just that's just not for me, you know. Uh self-control? Yeah, I'd rather be addicted to stuff. I'd rather, you know, like have a life that's out of control or Faithfulness, yeah, it's, it's not really how I care to be remembered. It's a faithful guy. Like I'd rather be, L-l- guys, even, even I wish I had time to preach, but like even even secularism and the progressive worldview is trying to shape, can we put the fruit of the spirit back on the screen? It's trying to shape that kind of person. This is what secularism is after. Secularism wants the fruit of the spirit without the spirit. But all it wants is to shape this is the kind of person we all want to be. And, and what Paul's saying is these fruits of the Spirit may not be, if you have Jesus, this may not be your strongest desires, but you better believe these are the deepest desires of your soul. And so the flesh in you may want to be selfish, but the Spirit in you wants to love and lay down your life for other people. Guys, the, f- the flesh in you wants to come home from a hard day's work and kick your feet up and crack one open and, and let your wife do all the dirty work. And then maybe expect her to be intimate with you when you go to bed. Like, come on, dude. Um, you, you know, your, your main job starts when you get home. And you know what the spirit in you wants to do? To love and lay down your life for your wife and your family. Now, my strongest desires often get in the way of that, but that's your deepest desire. That wasn't in my notes, so that's for somebody, okay? If not, it was definitely for me. The flesh in you wants to numb your pain. The spirit in you wants to produce joy in the midst of your pain and sorrow. The flesh drives you to anxiety and control. The spirit wants to produce a peace that surpasses all understanding. The flesh in you is always in a hurry. The spirit makes you patient. The flesh in you wants to be hostile toward other people, especially those you disagree with, but the Spirit leads you into kindness. The flesh in you doesn't give a rip about integrity or like what you do and nobody's looking or whatever, but the Spirit wants to produce goodness and wholeness and righteousness and integrity in your life. The the flesh is willing to compromise however it needs to, but the Spirit produces faithfulness. The the flesh in you wants to be harsh with your spouse and your children, but the spirit in you wants to be gentle. The flesh is all about self-gratification, but the spirit in you wants to embrace the wisdom of self-control. Your strongest desires are at war with your deepest desires. This brings us to our last question, okay, and we'll close here on some application. Stay with me as disciples of Jesus, how do we resist our strongest desires of the flesh and live into the deeper desires of the spirit? Put another way, how do we work with the spirit to grow and experience this kind of fruit in our lives? Well, to answer that question, I just want to unpack Paul's metaphor of fruit. You know, Paul could have used any metaphor, any image he wants to describe the process of transformation in the Christian life, and he chooses the metaphor of fruit. And if there's one thing we know about Paul, the dude doesn't waste words. Anytime you see a metaphor like this show up in the Bible, there's layers of meaning to it, and the author wants you to chew on it. So if you really want to experience this kind of transformation in your inner character and in your life and relationships, here's here's the thing. You need to know something about the way fruit grows, like specifically Paul wants us to see at least four things about how fruit grows that teaches us something about how we grow. Y'all with me? All right, so here we go. Four things if you're taking notes and we're done. First is this. You got to keep in mind that fruit growth is out of your control. Um, we have any gardeners in the room? If you garden then then you know gardening takes a lot of hard work, okay? Uh, but, but think about this, you, when you finally see the fruit of your labor and you're looking at this delicious salad with fresh tomatoes and cucumbers and peppers that grew in your garden or you're dipping your chip in your fresh garden salsa, can you honestly taste that and look at that and can you honestly say with integrity, I grew this fruit. I grew these vegetables. No, you can't say that. Because what what does the science of fruit growing tell us about how fruit grows? Well, how does fruit actually grow? Well, there's a huge ball of gas that's way away from you called the sun, and it emits a huge amount of light and energy and heat, and that's crucial. Now, let me ask you a question. How much control do you have over the sun? Yeah, nada, okay? Then there's cloud coverage and how much sun and radiation gets admitted to the plants. How much control do you have over that? How much control do you have over the genetic structure and health of the plant itself? Yeah, none. Then there's this thing called photosynthesis that we learned about in second grade. How much control do you have over that whole process? None. Yeah, here's the point. You and I have no control over any of those things. So how does fruit grow? Well, fruit growth is fully dependent upon a greater reality and a power that's outside of you, and a power that's outside of your control. Here's what Paul's getting at with this metaphor. The growth and transformation that we long to experience only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit, not Adam's fruit. Notice how Paul says the works of the flesh are things we do, but the fruit of the Spirit are things the Spirit does. Sometimes we read this list and we think Paul's given us a list of commands. Okay, love. Okay, Paul's telling me I need to be more loving. I need to try really hard to be more loving. Joy. All right. I need to try to be a more joyful person. Patience. Okay. I need to grip my teeth and bite my tongue and just be more patient. Good luck with that. The problem is that all of the, all, that's just, those are strategies of the flesh. Because that's all about willpower, not the spirit's power. We live in a self-help uh, culture that is making billions off of us, telling us that through, if you just have enough self-help, you can actually transform your life. Get all the right information and adopt the right strategies and all that, and you can have top to bottom, inside out, make yourself a whole new person. Well, the problem with that is it's all dependent upon willpower. There's one thing we know about willpower. You have a completely finite source of it, li- limited resource, right? So that's why you know it runs out. For me, usually around 11.30 a.m., it's gone right? And by the time I get home, the end of a stressful day, it's really hard to keep some things under control, right? So Paul's whole point here is like, if you really want to change, you need access to a greater power that's outside of you. How do you get in touch with the power of the Holy Spirit? Here's what's mind blowing. If you've trusted in Jesus, the outside power source has come and made his dwelling on the inside of you. So the Holy Spirit's now closer to you than you are to you. And if you really want to change, you have to, it's this process of surrender, of like, I, this is out of my control. If, if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up for me, I'll never become this kind of person. Are y'all with me? Okay, it's out of your control. Now, having said all of that, let me say this. When it comes to experiencing the fruit of the Spirit in your life, the Holy Spirit does all the heavy lifting, but that does not mean that you and I don't have a role to play. So, here's what Paul's getting at brilliantly with this metaphor while it's true that fruit growth is dependent upon a higher power, a true farmer and a good gardener doesn't sit back on the porch and say, I'll just let the sun and photosynthesis do all the work for me. Like a good, a good gardener knows that fruit growth is hard work. So when it comes to our growth, we're called to do the work of a gardener. A good gardener cultivates the soil and provides a a hospitable environment where the where the fruit can grow. So here's the, here's the application for us. What are you doing to cultivate the soil of your heart and create a hospitable place for the Holy Spirit? Like you you can't control the sun, but you can pull the weeds. You can plant seeds, you can water, you can wait, you can love, you can tend, you can prune, you can care, all working toward a harvest. So What are you doing to seed and water your heart with the truth of the gospel? What What are the weeds that you need to pull and the boundaries that you need to put in place to protect the fruit that the Spirit's trying to grow? Like a a good gardener knows that fruit is always vulnerable to attack. You got all this fungi and the soil and insects and rodents and stuff that threaten to destroy the crop. So to tease out the metaphor, like where do you need to spray some pesticide? Where do you need to put up some chicken wire to like guard some boundaries? Okay. To guard and protect the fruit that the spirit, because the flesh, the flesh wants to come in and sabotage it every time. So maybe for you, it's a, it's a, it's a habit you need to kick. Maybe it's a boundary with another person, a boundary with how you relate to food, drink, money, work, sex, your phone. Guys, if, if your smartphone is is like killing you with porn, then get a flip phone. That's there's some chicken wire for you. Okay, you're welcome. Do that. And if you're like, man, but the modern convenience of work and email and Facebook's how I stay connected. Are you kidding me? Like, you're gonna let the the modern conveniences of that thing continue to be a place where your character is deformed and destroyed? Put up some chicken wire, dude. Like, spray the weeds. <laughs> get in a DNA. Confess your sin. Like listen, take care of your soul. It's the only one you have. And it's hard work. But if you do it, listen, the harvest is coming. Third, I hope this is not the case, but maybe at this point you feel defeated and you're frustrated and you're like, well, the, here's the problem is I'm doing all those things, okay? I'm doing the hard work, all that stuff. I'm, I'm working, I'm waiting on the Spirit, but I just don't see the fruit. I don't see the fruit that I expect to see. And I just want you to know, I feel personally feel this way all the time. Um, Paul wants to encourage us with this metaphor by reminding us though, that fruit growth is slow, slow. It's a gradual process. It takes time. And some of you are like, how is that encouraging? Well, it's hard for us to swallow that in our fast paced world of instant messaging, wifi, next day shipping, Amazon prime and all that, because we want it all. We want it all right now. But the thing, here's the thing I know about character, even in my own life is you can't microwave character. And you can't pray for it and it's like dragging it into your cart and hitting complete purchase and then next day you have it. Like, I'm going to pray for it and then boom, I've got it. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. It takes time. It's something that has to be grown. The great C.S. Lewis says it like this. If we let him, meaning the spirit, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or goddess. Talking about restoring the image of God in you. A dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. Fruit growth is slow, and parts of the journey will be painful. And some of you are feeling that right now. You feel like you are grapes in the wine press, and you're just being crushed. But God is making something more beautiful. Some of you feel the blades of the the pruning, like you feel the cuts, and you feel like you're, you're bleeding out. But what my horticulturist friend likes to tell me is that when a branch is cut, it forces the branch to draw deeper upon the life of the vine than it ever has had to before. And that that brings me to my final point, which is this. True and lasting fruit growth only comes through abiding. Jesus says this in John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain or abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. So, this is the secret ingredient to bearing fruit. I mean how do, how do we experience deep healing and transformation and freedom from all the patterns and coping strategies of the flesh? It's through abiding in Jesus. Or to use Paul's language from Galatians 5, it's walking by the Spirit. Here's what that means. To abide in Jesus or walk by the Spirit, saying the same thing, it's living this life of constant surrender, of constant coming to the end of yourself, embracing your neediness, embracing your weakness, getting to this place where you embrace the reality that you never, ever graduate from your need for Jesus. Because apart from him, you can do what? Nothing. You know what that means? Jesus is your only hope. Walking by the spirit is just walking in tune with this song that the spirit is singing in you. All you have is Jesus. Jesus is your only hope. He will never leave you and forsake you. He is the only source of life. He is everything. He is love. Without him, you've got nothing. You, There's no hope. That's it's it's just it's just getting back to that place and it's a place of surrender. The Spirit d- grows His best fruit in that soil. It's the soil of of surrender. And it's the life that you want in the deepest part of you. I'll close with verse 24. Paul says this. Those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is what I love. Have crucified... Those who belong to Jesus. Here's what he's saying. When, when Jesus died on the cross, because your identity is in Him, because you have a union with Christ through the Spirit... That means that this part of you was also killed at the cross. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have died with Christ. So when Christ died on the cross, who else died with him? The flesh did, right? And here's the good news, guys. The flesh will not survive the resurrection. It has been mortally wounded. Its days are number, numbered, and it's bleeding out. And I, I love that scene in John 20 when Jesus shows up. I'm going to go invite the band to come, come back up. When Jesus shows up in John 20 and Mary mistakes him for the gardener and Jesus doesn't correct her because it was a prophetic mistake. In fact, it wasn't a mistake at all. He is the gardener. Jesus is the ultimate gardener who went into death and came out into life to, 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 to grow something different in your soul, to grow new life and a new creation in you. And Jesus has the, I'm telling you guys, the ultimate green thumb. Like, he is right now, through his Holy Spirit, making all things new. And if you're in Christ, you are part of that. And he will finish what he started. So what we, what we celebrate each week at communion is we come back to this place of, of remaining in Jesus, abiding in Jesus, realizing that there's no fruit that grows outside of that space and and the the soil is the fact that his his blood was shed for us and his body was broken for us to give us new life. And if you're a Christian, if you're a disciple, like that's that that good news is for you and we invite you to take this meal and celebrate. And if you're in this room and you you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. This is a safe place for you to be. And and our prayer for you and our encouragement is that you wouldn't take this meal but you would take Jesus. Take him embrace him as the the good news and the the deepest desires of your soul, what you're searching for, is found only in him. And if you want to talk more about that after the service, I, I I'll be available. Robert, Luke, Bill, our staff, anybody anybody here would love to talk with you about that. So I'm going to pray for us. Let's, let's go to the Father. Let's pray. And then we'll sing one more song together. So, Jesus, I do pray now that you would put us in touch with what we really want, which is you. Wake us up to that. And just have your way with us. Comfort us where we need to be comforted. Convict us where we need to be convicted. um, Bring peace. Bring the fruit of the Spirit. Bring the fruit of the Spirit. Grow it in us as a people. May we be known for that kind of transformation in our city and beyond. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.